Section 9 of The Secrets of the Woods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maggie Travers. Secrets of the Woods by William J. Long. Section 9. Miko the Mischief Maker. Part 1. There is a curious Indian legend about Miko the Red Squirrel, the Mischief Maker as the Milliseats call him, which is also an excellent commentary upon his character. Simo told it to me one day when we had caught Miko coming out of a woodpecker's hole, with the last of a brood of fledglings in his mouth, chuckling to himself over his hunting. Long ago, in the days when Cloyd Scarp ruled the animals, Miko was much larger than he is now, large as Muween the bear, but his temper was so fierce, and his disposition so altogether bad, that all the wood folk were threatened with destruction. Miko killed right and left with the temper of a weasel, who kills from pure lust of blood. So Cloyd Scarp, to save the little woods people, make Miko smaller, small as he is now. Unfortunately, Cloyd Scarp forgot Miko's disposition, that remained as big and as bad as before. So now Miko goes about the woods with a small body and a big temper, barking, scolding, quarreling, and since he cannot destroy in his rage as before, setting other animals by the ears to destroy each other. When you have listened to Miko's scolding for a season, and have seen him going from nest to nest after innocent fledglings, or creeping into the den of his big cousin, the beautiful gray squirrel, to kill the young, or driving away his little cousin, the chipmunk, to steal his hoarded nuts, or watching every fight that goes on in the woods, jeering and chuckling above it, then you begin to understand the Indian legend. Spite of his evil ways, however, he is interesting and always unexpected. When you have watched the red squirrel that lives near your camp all summer, and you think you know all about him, he does the queerest thing, good or bad, to upset all your theories and even the Indian legends about him. I remember one that greeted me, the first living thing in the great woods as I ran my canoe ashore on a wilderness river. Miko heard me coming. His bark sounded loudly, and a big spruce above the dip of the paddles. As we turned shoreward, he ran down the tree in which he was, and out on a fallen log to meet us. I grasped a branch of the old log to steady the canoe, and watched him curiously. He had never seen a man before. He barked, jeered, scolded, jerked his tail, whistled, did everything within his power to make me show my teeth and my disposition. Suddenly he grew excited, and when Miko grows excited, the woods are not big enough to hold him. He came nearer and nearer to my canoe till he leapt upon the gunwale and sat there chattering as if he were a dajidamo, come back again, and I were Hiawatha. All the while he had poured out a torrent of squirrel talk, but now his note changed. Jeering and scolding and curiosity went out of it. Something else crept in. I began to feel somehow that he was trying to make me understand something and found me very stupid about it. I began to talk quietly calling him a rattlehead and a disturber of the peace. At the first sound of my voice, he listened with intense curiosity, then leapt to the log, ran the length of it, jumped down and began to dig furiously among the moss and dead leaves. Every moment or two he would stop and jump to the log to see if I were watching him. Presently he ran to my canoe, sprang upon the gunwale, jumped back again, and ran along the log as before to where he had been digging. He did it again, looking back at me and saying plainly, "'Come here, come and look!' I stepped out of the canoe to the old log, whereupon Miko went off in a fit of terrible excitement. I was bigger than he expected. I had only two legs. Cut-a-cut-chuck, cut-a-cut-chuck, wit-wit-wit-wit, cut-a-cut-chuck. I stood where I was until he got over his excitement. 
Then he came towards me and led me along the log, with much chuckling and jabbering, to the hole in the leaves where he had been digging. When I bent over it, he sprang to a spruce trunk on a level with my head, fairly bursting with excitement, but watching me with intense interest. In the hole I found a small lizard, one of the rare kind that lives under logs and loves the dusk. He had been bitten through the back and disabled. He could still use legs, tail, and head feebly, but could not run away. When I picked him up and held him in my hand, Miko came closer with loud-voiced curiosity, longing to leap to my hand and claim his own, but held back by fear. "'What is it? He's mine. I found him. What is it?' he barked, jumping about as if bewitched. Two curiosities, the lizard and the man, were almost too much for him. I never saw a squirrel more excited. He had evidently found the lizard by accident, bit him to keep him still, and then, astonished by the rare find, hid him away where he could dig him out and watch him at leisure. I put the lizard back into the hole and covered him with leaves, then went to unloading my canoe. Miko watched me closely, and the moment I was gone he dug away the leaves, took his treasure out, watched it with wide, bright eyes, bit into it once more to keep it still, and covered it up again carefully. Then he came chuckling along to where I was putting up my tent. In a week he owned the camp, coming and going at his own will, stealing my provisions when I forgot to feed him, and scolding me roundly at every irregular occurrence. He was an early riser and insisted on my conforming to the custom. Every morning he would leap at daylight from a fur tip to my bridge pole, run along it to the front, and sit there, barking and whistling until I put my head out of my door, or until Simo came along with his axe. Of Simo and his axe, Miko had a mortal dread, which I could not understand till one day when I paddled silently back to the camp and, instead of coming up the path, sat idly in my canoe watching the Indian, who had broken his own pipe and now sat making another out of a chunk of black adder and a length of nanny bush. Simo was as interesting to watch in his way as any of the wood folk. Presently Miko came down, chattering his curiosity at seeing the Indian so still and so occupied. A red squirrel is always unhappy unless he knows all about everything. He watched from the nearest tree for a while, but could not make up his mind about what was doing. Then he came down on the ground and advanced a foot at a time, jumping up continually, but coming down in the same spot, barking to make Simo turn his head and show his hand. Simo watched out of the corner of his eye until Miko was near a solitary tree which stood in the middle of the campground, when he jumped up suddenly and brushed at the squirrel, who sprang to the tree and ran to a branch out of reach snickering and jeering. Simo took his axe deliberately and swung it mightily at the foot of the tree as if to chop it down, only he hit the trunk with the head, not the blade of his weapon. At the first blow, which made his toes tingle, Miko stopped jeering and ran higher. Simo swung again, and Miko went up another notch. So it went on, Simo looking up intently to see the effect, and Miko running higher after each blow until the tip-top was reached. Then Simo gave a mighty whack, the squirrel leapt far out and came to the ground, sixty feet below, picked himself up, none the worse for his leap, and rushed scolding away to his nest. Then Simo said, Oof, like a bear, and went back to his pipe-making. He had not smiled nor relaxed the intent expression on his face during the whole little comedy. I found out afterwards that making Miko jump from a treetop is one of the few diversions of Indian children. I tried it myself many times with many squirrels, and found to my astonishment that a jump from any height, however great, is no concern to a squirrel, red or gray. They have a way of flattening the body and bushy tail against the air, which breaks their fall. Their bodies, and especially their bushy tails, have a curious, tremulous motion, like the quiver of wings as they come down. 
the flying squirrel sailing down from a treetop to another tree fifty feet away is but an exaggeration due to the membrane connecting the fore and hind legs of what all squirrels practice continually i have seen a red squirrel land lightly after jumping from an enormous height and run away as if nothing unusual had happened but though i have watched them often i have never seen a squirrel do this except when compelled to do so when chased by a weasel or a marten or when the axe beats against the trunk below either because the vibration hurts their feet or else they fear the tree is being cut down they use the strange gift to save their lives but i fancy it is a breathless experience and they never try it for fun though i have seen them do all sorts of risky stumps in leaping from branch to branch it is a curious fact that though a squirrel leaps from a great height without hesitation it is practically impossible to make him take a jump of a few feet to the ground probably the upward rush of air caused by falling a long distance is necessary to flatten the body enough to make him land lightly it would be interesting to know whether the raccoon also a large heavy animal has the same way of breaking his fall when he jumps from a height one bright moonlight night when i ran ahead of the dogs I saw a big coon leap from a tree to the ground, a distance of some thirty or forty feet. The dogs had treed him in an evergreen, and he left them howling below while he stole silently from branch to branch until a good distance away, when to save time he leapt to the ground. He struck with a heavy thump, but ran on uninjured as swiftly as before, and gave the dogs a long run before they treed him again. The sole of a coon's foot is padded thick with fat and gristle, so that it must feel like landing on springs when he jumps. But I suspect that he also knows the squirrel trick of flattening his body and tail against the air so as to fall lightly. The chipmunk seems to be the only one of the squirrel family in whom this gift is wanting. Possibly he has it also, if the need ever comes. I fancy, however, that he would fare badly if compelled to jump from a spruce top, for his body is heavy and his tail small from long living on the ground, all of which seems to indicate that the tree squirrel's bushy tail is given him not for ornament, but to aid his passage from branch to branch and to break his fall when he comes down from a height. By way of contrast with Miko, you may try a curious trick on the chipmunk. It's not easy to get him into a tree. He prefers a log or an old wall when frightened and he is seldom more than two or three jumps from his den, but watch him as he goes from his garner to the grove where the acorns are, or to the field where his winter corn is ripening. Put yourself near his path, he always follows the same one to and fro, where there is no refuge close at hand. Then, as he comes along, rush at him suddenly, and he will take to the nearest tree in his alarm. When he recovers from his fright, which is soon over, for he is the most trustful of squirrels and looks down at you with interest, never questioning your motives. Take a stick and begin to tap the tree softly. The more slow and rhythmical your tattoo, the sooner he is charmed. Presently he comes down closer and closer, his eyes filled with strange wonder. More than once I have had a chipmunk come to my hand and rest upon it, looking everywhere for the queer sound that brought him down, forgetting fright and cornfield, and coming winter into his bright curiosity. End of section nine. Recording by Maggie Travers.